You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you are wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or just how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Alice McLachlan, who is a philosophy professor at York University in Toronto, Canada. We talk about revenge, and we wonder if it can ever be virtuous. Hello, Alice, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Maisha. Thanks for having me. I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on. So, so tell me, Alice, how did you get interested in philosophy? All right. I love this question. Um, I think I might be one of the closest things there is to a philosophy Nepo baby. Is that a thing? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's official I mean, now, I think. I'm officially the first philosophy. Well, I'm not the first philosophy Nepo baby. If you think about it, there are some others, much far more eminent, famous ones out there. But what I really mean is I think I became a philosopher because I had someone who was like a parental figure to me, really a father figure who was a philosopher growing up. So we had this family friend who was a philosophy professor. His name is Stephen Burns. He, is a prof- he was a prophet at Dalhousie University. And he was just the coolest human being I knew when I was a kid. Um, he was, you know, and he looked the part of a philosophy professor. He had a beard. <laughs> he was tall. He was really good at staring off into space. But more than that, he was just the kindest, most generous person I knew. He took all my ridiculous questions seriously. He always wanted to give them an answer. He would take me telling him about a stupid children's television program and turn it into a logic puzzle. He would ask me weird and wonderful questions about the fiction I was reading. Um, And he just, he treated any topic I brought up as worthy of his full attention as an adult. And so Mm. I mistakenly sort of, I guess, kind of mistakenly thought that's what philosophers do. And um, I just, as long as I have known, knew I wanted to be him when I grew up. Uh, And actually, if I can just add, this fall, I had the opportunity to be part of a conference celebrating his work. Um, He retired recently. um, And now it's coming out as a fetch shift in Dialogue, the Journal of the Canadian Philosophical Association. And there's just something amazing about getting... So I ended up writing a piece on his work on friendship. And I was able to use that to talk about what it means to see philosophical teaching as a form of friendship and what it means to have a philosophy friendship. So lucky, lucky Nepo baby. That's me. So in our conversation today, we're not going to talk about friendship. Um, No, we are not. We're going to talk about perhaps (laughs) a thing that has a tendency to ruin friendships and that is is revenge and and, and repair. So I'm going to ask you a question that may seem apparent but you are a philosopher, so I want you to, to offer some complexity to this question. What is revenge? And what are some philosophical arguments against revenge? Okay, no, that is fair enough. And obviously, because I'm a philosopher, I'm tempted to say, ooh, that's a tricky question. But it's not. <laughs> 
So, I mean, the most obvious understanding of revenge is it's an action taken to intentionally harm another person, what we might call the target of revenge. And it's taken because the agent sees themselves as being wrongfully harmed by the target. And so the action they take to harm the target in turn is a way of writing the scales, settling the score, demanding accountability, sort of getting even. That's the most basic understanding of revenge. I might want to complicate that later, but let's start from there. And as for the second part of your question, oh my goodness, there are so many philosophical arguments against it. Um, let me think. For starters, revenge is often violent. Um, revenge often sort of, it's intentionally inflicting harm on another person. Revenge often escalates, you know, you do something to me, I get mad, I think, oh, I'm going to get that Maisha, and I do something bad. And you think, hang on, why is Alice doing this to me? And before we know it, we've escalated. You know, this could be a series of slights and petty, spiteful actions taken between two people, but it also, in cultures of revenge, could be lead to blood feuds or things like that. Um, it's the stereotype of revenge is that it can be obsessive, that it can be disproportionate, that it can cause that it can cause harm to innocent third parties and bystanders, and that someone who seeks revenge is never really satisfied with it. So that I think is like the worst picture of revenge that you can take. Now, what's interesting is not all of those things are necessary. None of those are sort of necessary to the act of revenge. I don't have to become obsessive to take revenge on someone. I don't have to be violent to take revenge on someone. I don't have to be disproportionate to take revenge on someone. Those are, if you like, risks associated with the practice. Um, but the, to my mind, the most compelling and difficult argument to respond to against revenge comes from the Kantian tradition. Um, and I think it was really well articulated by philosopher Trudy Govier, who both you and I know writes a lot about retaliation and also reconciliation. And Govier basically says, okay, suppose revenge were not obsessive, not violent, kept proportional, no one else got hurt. It was just sort of a one-off, clean cut, non-right violating action taken as revenge. If that's the case, could revenge be right? Is there anything wrong with a desire for revenge or an act taken to fulfill that desire as such? And I love that. That really isolates the question. And Govier says, yes, no matter what, even under these sort of very sanitized conditions, revenge is still wrong because it still treats the victim as a means to an end. And not only that, it treats the victim's suffering in particular as a means to the end of my satisfaction. I am still using the target of my revenge as a way to feel satisfied about the way things turned out or the moral accounting or something like that. And as long as we recognize that at the kernel of revenge, this sort of instrumentality of another person's suffering, it's always going to be morally wrong. Now, you are dubious about revenge being always morally wrong. And I want you to kind of uh, convince us <laughs> of, your, of your view. So, so why is this? How can it be, in your words, and I'm going to quote you here, a form of moral address? All right. Yeah. So this is not an easy task. And I would say that my track rate for um, my track record for convincing people of this is not amazing. But let me do my best. <laughs> okay. 
I think to do this, we have to go back to the origin of my interest in revenge, which comes from the book and then the film, The Princess Bride. So I was a kid when I first read and saw The Princess Bride. My grade three teacher read it to us. And then, or I guess, and then the next year or something, it came out as a movie and I saw it. And, you know, it's supposed to be a love story between Buttercup and Wesley. And it's very funny. And I had no interest in any of that. All my attention was taken by the figure of Inigo Montoya. So Inigo Montoya is the Spanish fencer whose lifelong quest is to seek revenge on his father's murderer, the six-fingered man. And when we first meet Inigo Montoya, he sort of is telling someone, I don't want to give too much away here because everyone should see this movie. They should Um, have seen it already. (laughs) They should have seen it already, right? It's been 30 years. I guess there's no spoilers. I don't know. I showed it to my 10-year-old this week. So like, I'm aware there are some people who have seen it, but we won't let 10-year-olds listen to the podcast. It'll be okay. Anyway, so Inigo Montoya says to Wesley, to this other character, I've been searching my whole life for this man. And when I find him, I'm going to come up to him and I'm going to say, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And I think the case for revenge can be made in that speech. And it's this. If Inigo Montoya kills the six-fingered man without saying this, I don't think he's really taken revenge on him. The six-fingered man dies, but he doesn't die in he doesn't know that he is dying because of this wrong he did. He doesn't know that the score has been settled. In particular, he is not forced to confront the way that he himself is facing the end of his life because of the way he ended someone else's life. He is not forced to see his own part in the sort of moral scales first being imbalanced and then being balanced through um, through this act of revenge. And you can actually see this in the plot of the movie. You know, when Inigo Montoya finally finds the six-fingered man, he has to say this before they can start fighting. And the fight doesn't go very well at first. In fact, it looks like Inigo has been mortally wounded. And he starts repeating the phrase over and over again to give himself courage to go on. And finally, the other guy, the six-fingered man screams, stop saying that! And he's more incensed by the language than the actual sword fight. And so I don't often use a line of dialogue from a film to prop up an entire philosophical argument, but I do think that this is getting at something. And um, other philosophers have talked about this too. Rob Staten is another Canadian philosopher who lays out sort of the conditions under which something can properly be revenge. But if we go further back, one of my favorite philosophers, Adam Smith, talks about this too, when he's talking about resentment and resentment as a kind of desire that others, that wrongdoers suffer, that they be punished. And he says, when we're feeling this, we don't just want that the other person be punished, that we suffer. They want, we want him to be punished by our means. So by me as the agent, and because of that particular injury that they did to us, My resentment isn't fully gratified unless the offender is made to suffer, uh, Smith says, to grieve, to grieve because of the wrong that he did to us and is made to repent and feel sorry for this action. And it's that complicated set of desires that started to interest me about revenge, because wanting all that from someone is the very opposite of treating them like a mere means or an instrument. Mm -hmm. We don't want our tools to feel things. We don't want mere instruments to have, um, if you like, shifts in worldview and shifts in understanding. We don't need people we are using 
to experience some sort of trans transformation in their thinking and in their moral attitudes. That we want from our interlocutors, from someone we're having a conversation with. And I think philosophical dismissals of revenge have failed to notice the way in which it can be um, conversation rather than exploitation. And once you start to think about revenge as a sort of move in a, in a moral conversation, then you lose that intrinsic uh, sort of argument against it. It at least opens up the possibility that there is something valuable, something reparative, something justice related. Um, I would say something accountable in the act of revenge. So I do want you to use film to prop up your philosophical position, excellent. <laughs> particularly, particularly for this next question. So, so tell me, what is a what is a, a virtuous revenger in your view? And I do want you to use film to kind of illuminate this this idea for us. Okay, I love this question. So, who is the virtuous revenger? Now, credit is where credit is due. I'm not the first philosopher to use this term, and I'm not the first philosopher to relate it to film. But we're going to talk about some very different sets of films. So I borrow it from Peter French, who uses it to talk specifically about cowboy Western genre films. And he's interested in the moral universe that's depicted in the genre of Western films. Um, and so he uses this picture that sort of, he talks about how in sort of cowboy Westerns, you often have a fantasy of a morally karmic universe. So a universe where everyone gets their moral desserts in some way. And he goes on to talk about the figure of the virtuous revenger as someone who has what he calls the moral authority to take revenge. For French, this is a straightforward virtue analysis. The virtuous avenger is someone who takes vengeance on a target who deserves it, who has an epistemically sound procedure for determining that the target deserves it. So they get the right guy and they get it for the right reasons. Um, and whose actions demonstrate proportionality and fit. You know, um, it's not sort of 10 murders for the sake of one. And who has the right kind of character, who is in some way upright or noble and therefore can do this. So that's French's picture. I wanted a more relational account of how revenge could go right. Because what interests me specifically about thinking about revenge as moral address is this idea of conversation between interlocutors. Um, so when I started to think about who was a virtuous revenger, I thought, what would a relational picture, what would this picture look like translated into a more relational ethics? Well, the right revenger, the virtuous revenger would be someone who sits in appropriate moral relationships. So who sits in right relationship to the victim, um, who uh, sort of has a has an understanding of what who the victim was, what their value is, might, what they might have wanted and needed, who sits in appropriate moral relationship to the wrongdoing and to its consequences, who has some sort of personal connection. Um, actually, in talking about this kind of right relationship, I'm building on work I've done on who has the standing to forgive. I think there's some interesting parallels between forgiveness and 
vengeance. Now, I know you and I could talk about forgiveness all day, and that's another conversation. But I have argued that there are some third parties who find themselves in the appropriate position to forgive because of their relationship to the victim, because of their own personal experiences, identities, and empathetic understandings. And I think there's something similar going on here. We we trust our closest friends to get us to be able to speak for us under certain occasions. And I think it's that kind of standing that might lead to something like virtuous vengeance. Now, that's not the only condition. I also think the virtuous revenger is someone who keeps these values and relationships in minds and her actions, whose values are expressed through her actions, and who demonstrates appropriate attention and care to what has been broken, to what needs accountability, and to what needs repair. And so you can hear from all this talk of relationality, I'm very much drawing on a feminist moral picture. And my interest in looking at virtuous revengers doesn't focus on sort of what is a very men-filled genre, cowboy westerns, where often the women are the original victims of crime, but very but don't show up for the rest of the plot. Instead, I look at two different treatments of feminist revengers. Um, whether or not something counts as a feminist film is a complicated question. Um, but in my work on revenge, I look at two films that feature feminist agents taking revenge for acts of sexual violence against women. So these films are Hard Candy, which is from 2005 and stars Elliot Page, and um, Promising Young Woman, which is from 2020. So they're about 15 years apart. And in Hard Candy, you have a young woman, Haley, who at first seems to be the victim of sort of entrapment by a pedophile and quickly becomes clear that she has figured out that this man is um, a sexual predator and is attempting to entrap him. And what follows is a very complicated and violent sort of cat and mouse game between them. In Promising Young Woman, the 2020 film, Cassie is um, a young woman whose life seems to have stalled out, who is seeking revenge on behalf of her friend, Nina. Um, I feel like at the, the, I probably should have offered appropriate content warning sooner. I hope that your listeners have picked up. I'm talking about sexual violence. The plot of Promising Young Woman, the premise is incredibly upsetting. What follows is incredibly upsetting. So forgive me for a slightly belated content warning now, but I am gonna be discussing the plot. Uh, Cassie's friend Nina was in med school with her, was recorded being gang raped, was was seen by witnesses, and Nina subsequently committed suicide. Cassie has been unable to move on with her life, um, feels that the people who perpetrated the sexual violence were not brought to justice, and all the people who who either got in the way of accountability or failed to take responsibility or enabled this in some way have also not receive justice. And she has identified these people and she is one by one targeting them and putting them in a position to realize the moral consequences of what they have done. Now, I think Cassie and Haley, these two very different figures who are responding to very similar wrongdoings. So first of all, um, acts of incredible sexual, sort of awful sexual violence and death of young women you have the initial act of wrongdoing, and then you have sort of the wrongdoing that is the institutional failure to do anything about it, to get justice, to seek accountability, to make things safer for women, or to, or to deal with perpetrators. 
So these are similar wrongdoings and similar motivations. Both protagonists see themselves as needing to act because no one else will. And I used these as contrast cases to explore what I think are sort of um, underlooked moral risks of revenge on the one hand, and on the other, moral potentialities of revenge, its possible place in a more reparative picture of accountability, the role, a sort of good moral role it might play in setting things right after wrong. Now, Haley commits acts of violence. Um, she also has, it's clear she has already decided who is right, who is wrong, what needs to happen. There is no opportunity for moral conversation. There is no response that her target could make. And in that way, I argue that she goes wrong by committing what I'm calling a moral mic drop in some way. And this is the worrying thing. You know, the, um, Inigo Montoya's speech doesn't have room for a response. You know, it doesn't say, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. What should we do now? It's already prepare to die. And I think that is one danger with revenge's moral address that hasn't been picked up because people weren't seeing it as part being an address in a conversation. Namely, that is unilateral and it fails to be open to the possibility of correction response um, for their conversation. Cassie, on the other hand, because her aim is not simply to harm the people she thinks is responsible are responsible for her friend's um, abuse and subsequent death, but rather to put them in a position to see the world the way she does, to harm them by forcing them to confront their own failings, leaves herself morally vulnerable to correcting her perception. Now, I'm going to tell you about a scene in the movie, so those of you who want to avoid spoilers should, I don't know, st should fast forward for three minutes or something like that. But one of the targets of Cassie's project of revenge is the lawyer who defended uh, her friend's rapist. And she shows up at his house, ready to sort of do what she needs to do to confront him. I'll leave the details vague only to discover that this is a man who is fully aware of the ways in which he went wrong, whose life has been ruined by his own complicity in this institutional failure. He alludes to it ruining his relationships, his family, his career, he's a mess. Uh, and so instead of taking the action she had intended to take, she actually ends up listening to him and comforting him. It becomes clear that she that she is open to the possibility, not just, not that she has the wrong target because he did do what she thought he did and he hasn't faced any accountability for it, but she responds to his response to her initial address. She readjusts herself and sort of opens up to the possibility of a more obviously reparative uh, action in this context. And so, and there is another moment in the movie where she also fails to stop in time, where she goes too far and herself is then made to feel guilty and ashamed for what she has done to someone. And what I like about this depiction is it brings out um, the need for epistemic humility in moral repair. I think we um, a, vir a morally virtuous revenger 
is one who does all the thing that all the things that French described, you know, who has the right target, who acts with proportionality and fit, who is using good methods to figure out whose responsibility. But on top of that, who is relationally well suited to understand what needs to be repaired in the aftermath of wrong, who sees what is broken, and who remains epistemically humble and open to the possibility of moral correction and persuasion. And so that is what I argue constitutes the virtuous revenger. So let's talk about repair a little bit. It's, it seems that revenge and repair is in conflict. But I think I'm right in saying that you have coined the term reparative revenge. So what, what is reparative revenge? What is some of its risks? What is some of its, its, its upsides? Yeah, I thank you. These are great questions. Reparative revenge really follows from my picture of what I take to be the virtuous revenger. So I think the virtuous revenger is someone who is engaged in reparative revenge. And that means um, acts of retaliation or vengeance whose ultimate aim is to repair, in some sense, the situation of wrongdoing. Now, um, you know, the, the literature around repair and moral repair in particular has exploded over the last two decades. I draw very much on the work of Elizabeth Spellman on repair and Margaret Walker on moral repair. Um, and both of them talk about sort of what needs to be in place for people to either develop or return to right moral relationships with one another. Um, so sometimes this can be a matter of telling the truth. If you think about political contexts, you know, sometimes it's important that um, the truth about what happened in is it Indian residential schools in Canada or government abuses or torture elsewhere, that we know what took place. That's a sort of very basic condition before we can get into right relationship. Um, you may also need sort of restoration of rights, but crucially, you may need some kind of accountability. And as a feminist philosopher, talking specifically about um, contexts where of sexual violence, where we know there is um, sort of consistent systemic failures to recognize sexual violence, to prevent sexual violence, and to properly respond to sexual violence, to believe women, to um, to identify perpetrators, to bring perpetrators to justice, to um, change norms such that there are sort of no tolerance policies around sexual violence. What I'm very interested, where in a sense, you're starting the project of moral repair from the premise of institutional failure, and particularly institutional failure around justice and accountability. And I think that this kind of context is one that leaves room for the possibility of reparative revenge. Because when systems fail us, when systems fail to provide accountability, all that's left is the possibility of interpersonal accountability, of quests something like Cassie's, where individuals or groups or communities demand, um, demand from perpetrators that they see what they have done, that they come to recognize themselves as accountable and responsible for sexual violence. You know, there is a lot of critique of call-out culture as being sort of petty and mean and damaging and divisive, but I think there is something really interesting about community practices of accountability circles or calling in or these sort of non-institutionalized interpersonal or community-based or sort of um, ground-up practices 
where groups of people get together and figure out how to create accountability without institutions, without sort of formal justice in some way. Now, am I saying that reparative revenge is doing that? Obviously not. I mean, as much as I would love it to be. Otherwise, movies are not real life. Very few among us are Inigo Montoya or Cassie or even Haley. Um, I don't think I have the moral nerve or the courage or certainly the sneakiness to pull off revenge or something like that. But I do think um, that we are very afraid of demanding interpersonal accountability, of trying to hold people responsible through shame or through confrontation of some kind because we are worried that it turns into mere revenge. When the Me Too movement started, a lot of the initial critiques of it was, oh, this has just turned into mere revenge, or this is just a witch hunt seeking revenge. And that's actually what got me interested in the project. I thought, it's so interesting that you can dismiss a movement or a set of practices or an action just by calling it revenge. You know, and if we open up the possibility that not all acts of revenge are bad, that some are aimed at repair, are aimed at accountability in a way that isn't just, you know, raising one side and lowering the other, that isn't just about getting even, but is rather about setting things right in a more holistic, um, relational manner, then we have to recognize that some of these sort of non-impersonal, non-institutional mechanisms of accountability and justice might have a valuable role to play in repair. Now, let me be clear. I think there are risks. You've asked me a couple of times about some of the risks of revenge, and I want to be clear. I think they're there. I'm not sort of advocating this as as strategy A in moral repair. Um, So, I mean, there's the external risks I listed at the beginning. Um, One is just violence. A lot of repair is violent. Um, I tend to think that violence should never be the first choice and should very rarely be any choice. Um, There are also the dangers of escalation, retaliation, of getting the wrong target, of implicating innocent bystanders. These are all risks involved in a kind of endeavor like revenge. Um, And I also think self-deception is a real risk here. I mean, you know, we're always all guilty. Uh, We're always all at risk of self-deception. But there's something about the sort of the self-deception of believing that you have a noble cause or you're doing the right thing. I think I have gone wrong in my life most when I'm quite sure I am right. Um, And I think there is something about revenge that can lend itself to sort of getting a little bit swept up in your own quest. Um, And of course, since the aim of revenge is to cause some kind of harm to another person, even if it's just um, the discomfort of being forced to see yourself as the bad guy, you know, that's a very painful and unpleasant experience. So is being publicly called out or shamed, you know, Cassie never uses violence she arguably never does anything irreparable to any of her targets. It's set to cause them to feel extremely negative emotions for a period of time. And yet, what she does to them, you know, in one case, for example, for the dean of the school that she feels should have taken responsibility for the conditions that led to, for not expelling the young men, for arguing the young men had promising futures ahead of them. Uh, she gives the dean good reason to believe that the dean's own daughter 
is currently in a party room in a situation much like the one that Cassie's friend Nina was in when she was sexually assaulted. Now, her daughter is fine. It's a deception. But for a period of 20 minutes, the dean believes her very young underage daughter is at risk of imminent sexual assault. And doing that to someone is a pretty awful and manipulative thing to do. You know, as a parent, it terrifies me. Uh, And you can imagine the kind of, this brings me back to sort of the way in which revenge has a tendency to be unilateral or to have, to be sort of, um, uh, sort of very narrow-minded, you know, focusing so much on the need to avenge your friend, to finish your quest, can allow you to become inattentive to the moral costs of that quest. I think we see this with a lot of um, otherwise noble moral endeavors, but one that specifically requires some sort of painful experience for one's interlocutor. I think we have to take the risk of unilateral thinking, of unilateral focus and a kind of moral inattention very seriously. So you just considered revenge in the absence of uh, functioning institutional justice. And I just wonder what you think about this, given that we do not live in an ideal context or a utopian society. Do you think that there will always be a place for revenge since there seems to be <laughs> just rampant <laughs> institutional injustice? And if so, what does this say about morality and, and sociality? You know, I love this question and it's really hard because someone has pushed me and they've sort of said, so should I be committing acts of revenge? I live in a bad world. And I was like, whoa, I'm not saying <laughs> that. And I don't actually know what my prescriptive advice is around revenge. Um, you know, I'm doing that sneaky philosopher's trick of pulling out conceptual space for the possibility of revenge that is good and for there being a place for revenge. And at the same time, I'm identifying a real world context. So sexual violence, gender-based violence, we could, there are other contexts as well that exactly matches the conditions I have argued might give rise to good, virtuous, reparative revenge. Does that mean I'm suggesting that we respond to gender-based violence with some sort of vigilante justice? No, I want to go on the record right now as saying that is not what I am saying. Instead, what I think is interesting is if you like, revenge is sort of, um, revenge is the limit case. You know, if even this can be warranted and possibly play a role in repair, given the realities of institutional failures around justice and violence and oppression in lots of different axes. What space is left in the middle ground between this limit case and what we tend to think is, you know, well, let's let the courts sort it out or let's let the institutions of justice do what they should and we shouldn't get involved. There is a whole range of conceptual and real practical political normative space for agents to be called to get involved in moral repair and for non-institutional communities and collectives to get involved. Um, I think that the Me Too movement, for example, takes up uh, a middle, a sort of a middle ground here. I also think, um, you know, I think there are other sort of public calls for accountability, ways in which bad actors have been called out not by institutions, but by collectives and people that occupy this middle ground as well. And I'm interested in exploring 
how we start to recognize when we go right and when we go wrong in this middle ground. Like, what are the norms? What are the practices? What are the risks? You know, there's been a real move towards public callouts and public shaming over the last decade or so. And we now know some of those risks. Um, it can get disproportionate very quickly. It can get violent, threatening very quickly. And often complex moral issues can be oversimplified and distorted as a result, or you can get the wrong people altogether. But because we've sort of said, oh, everything short of straightforward institutional justice is bad, it's mere revenge, it's mob violence, it's vigilante justice, we aren't doing the necessary normative work to figure out better norms for these practices, for how to do them well. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. But yeah, I do think there's always going to be a place for revenge of some kind or for these more interpersonal reparative strategies, some of which look a lot like revenge. The big picture is because I don't see institutional systemic injustice going away anytime soon. Um, but actually, you know, I've been asked to write, so I've written two papers on revenge. And as we all know, every good revenge narrative needs to be a trilogy. So <laughs> I have a 2016 paper on Inigo Montoya, and I have a 2023 paper on these two feminist films, Hard Candy and Promising Young Woman. And I've been asked to contribute to a third, to a volume on revenge. And so I've been thinking, how it. do I end my trilogy, Maisha? How like, do you? All- how do you? Well, I think I go, you know, as feels right for me as a person from the noble to the petty. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, Cassie and Inigo Montoya are engaged in lifelong noble quests on behalf of the people they love most. Most of us don't do that, but we have all been guilty of small petty grudges um, of voting down someone's project, of clicking reply all on an email, of snubbing someone at a party. You know, these are tiny acts of revenge. And so I want to start to explore um, what I'm calling petty payback and civil revenge. And these are these everyday little retaliations, these everyday acts of pettiness and spite, social snubs, um, sudden reveals, even certain kinds of gossip. Um, you know, none of these are great. I don't want to defend them as acts of reparative revenge. But I've been thinking a lot about the role that things like civility and manners and etiquette play and sort of greasing the wheels and smoothing the gears of having to live together as, let's face it, uh, imperfect, foible-filled human beings. And now I'm starting to think that you know, that's one side of it, greasing the wheels. But sometimes, you know, pressure just builds up in the system and needs to kind of let loose. And I'm starting to wonder whether there is a role for these small, petty retaliations um, as a way of allowing us to deal with the demands of civility. It sort of, you know, it lets us let off steam in some way, just express that friction, that tension, get it out there so that we can continue to be imperfect but mostly good people the rest of the time so that's the other reason i don't think revenge is going anywhere because a lot of us have a lot of petty small resentments so that 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 leads me to my next question um this is the summer (laughs) of beyonce and taylor swift and uh, so beyonce has this line of her song in a song and she says the best revenge is your paper Mm -hmm. and uh kind of comes from um 
another kind of popular uh, phrase where it basically says that you know success is the best revenge. And I just wonder what you what you think about about that. Well, first of all, that's a great quote. The best success is, I mean, you know, since you have brought up both Beyonce and Taylor Swift, <laughs> I have talked about revenge in film. There, it is long overdue time for a paper on songwriting as right. revenge. And, you know, these are two people who are especially good at it. I mean, <laughs> right, remember, exactly. Remember a few years ago when there was a lemonade syllabus? I was a little hurt. No one put anything about revenge on that. <laughs> um, so the best revenge is success. You know, there's two interpretations of this. There is the sort of higher minded one, which, you know, the best revenge is a life well lived where you don't let the person who hurt you shape how you see yourself, you move on from them, you put them in the rearview mirror, and you go on to happiness. The other one is if we think about songwriting, the best revenge is getting to be the one who tells the story. Mm. You know, I mean, there's the line history is written by the winners. But tales of revenge told well are incredibly compelling. And a lot of us will remain sympathetic to a protagonist who does some pretty terrible things if we are moved by the sense, by their grievance, by their sense of wrong. You know, I've mentioned The Princess Bride and these more, two more recent movies. Uh, as a teenager in English class, I loved The Count of Monte Cristo as a story of, you know, someone who is so totally wronged and seeks revenge against everyone who ever hurt him in a very clever way. Um, I think the best revenge might be storytelling. Alice, what are your passions? <laughs> what are my passions? Well, not revenge. My passion <laughs> is not actually... I have had a very good life. Um... Yeah, no, I am not motivated by revenge. Maybe I'm the subject of someone else's revenge plot, but I haven't become aware of it just yet. Uh, well, I mean, there's some obvious answers. Philosophy is my passion. Uh, feminism, feminist causes are my passion on a less sort of abstract and noble level. I care very much about my kids, my gardens, too many uh, sci-fi fandoms to count. Um but, you know, as you ask this of me this year, I think recently something has sort of clarified for me. So um, I'm at a point in my career where I'm very lucky, where there are very few external hurdles that motivate me or that I need to measure myself against or jump through in order to get somewhere. I recently went up for promotion. I'm very lucky to have a tenured job. I'm very lucky that that job is at an institution that is thriving in an academic context that. Canadian public universities that is as thriving as anything is these days. Um, and so that's allowed me to sort of think more about what part of my professional life or my life as a whole I really care about most. Um, and I think the answer to that is mentoring. I think my passion is mentoring. Um, I am someone who has always had a lot of opportunities. Um, I'm very aware of that the, that privilege and that benefit, I am also aware of what it has felt like to need to live up to the burden of my own quote unquote promise and the sense that I really didn't. And I can't tell you the relief that comes from not needing to worry about my own promise anymore and getting to focus mm -hmm. on other people's. Mm -hmm. um, I love mentoring other people. I love teaching. 
Um, the part of teaching I love best is supervising graduate students. I've run the graduate um, program at my department for the last five or six years, and that has absolutely been my favorite part of the job. Thinking about not just relationships with individual students, but what I can do to sort of construct and scaffold an experience that will mean the most people get the most benefit. Um, I worked as a mentor in the Mark Sanders Foundation workshop for women in, in philosophy. There's an asterisk next to women. It isn't just women. It's everyone who comes from an underrepresented gender identity. Um, but I was a mentor there. And then this year, I was one of the co-directors of the workshop. I've also participated in um, a Canadian summer institute for students in philosophy, you know, various things like that. I think the part, the part of my job and the part of my calling in philosophy and where I want to direct my energies is thinking about how I can be positioned to work with really cool people whose ideas are better than mine and whose career is earlier than mine and how to make them great so that I don't need to think about my own ideas all the time. <laughs> so I'm not going to get kind of uh, sentimental here, but I just want to say you are a wonderful mentor. You've been a wonderful mentor for me. And uh, for those who want more details of how that, how that has taken form, you can read my book. I do pay some, some, some much love to, to you, Alice, in the book. Um, but that is something that you do, that you do very well. Oh, I should add, in case that sounds very selfless, on my last sabbatical, I also had a lot of fun trying to write a mystery novel set Ooh. at a department philosophy, a philosophy departmental treat where a retreat where colleagues just try and kill each other. So please don't think that I'm like <laughs> all love and joy here. So speaking of your job, you've just become vice provost and, and dean of graduate studies. And when I heard this, I was wondering why. <laughs> why make this move? Why make the move from the pleasurable hippie life of the professorate? to being a suit in administration. Please, please tell me why, Alice, why? I mean, I guess it would be a little snarky to say, I hope I look good in a suit. No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, I mean, maybe this is part of the great Canadian feminist philosophy takeover of academic administration. I'm following in the footsteps of some people I admire very much. But no, that's not quite it. Um, I think what's crucial is that I just took on a role in administering graduate studies in particular. And the answer is that this is an extension of my passion. Um, I really loved building and improving and working on a graduate program for philosophers. And, you know, I don't think I was God's gift to GP to graduate program directors, but I think I made a few changes and I like the idea of seeing what I can do at a bigger level and across a broader population. Um, I think, you know, I, I worry a lot about what it means to be a tenured professor at a university. Like what are universities contributing to the world? And in particular, to what extent is the model of a university a morally um, justifiable enterprise? And the part of that that I think about is particularly graduate students. You know, many universities with, many research universities rely on highly qualified, excellent graduate researchers to do our teaching and our research. So there is a dependence here. And the idea is we rely on these graduate students and in turn, we offer them something. And it's, a com it's something between sort of an apprenticeship and 
um, a meaningful educational experience in itself, but also a sort of promise of a first step on a career. And you and I both know what the realities of the academic job market are in philosophy, but beyond. We can no longer, I don't know if we ever could, but we certainly can't now guarantee that people who enter graduate school will exit into research professions, even in those fields that traditionally that was expected, like um, humanities, social sciences, pure sciences. And so I want to think, I want to participate in the business of making sure that graduate students um, know what they're getting into, have a good experience, sort of in terms of intellectual life, but also well-being, and have some sense of what happens afterwards. That we are being honest with graduate students, doing the best we can for them, and doing right by them when it comes to the next step. Now, that's, again, all noble-minded. Ask me in a year from now when I'm bogged down in <laughs> spreadsheets and meetings and thinking, my goodness, do I miss reading philosophy books? But, you know, it's worth a try. Can you recommend two books that you think are not only wonderful reads, but that also describe your 2023 thus far? Hmm. These are not going to be philosophy books. No, so two I, books. please don't. Please don't. <laughs> All right. I'm going to recognize, I'm going to recommend a book of poetry and a novel. Okay. And I think they represent rage and hope to me. Um, now, okay. rage is something you and I have thought about a lot. Um, right. I hope everyone reading has read your amazing book on anger. <laughs> they had better the case for rage. Um, they should also go read my comments on it because you and I do differ. Yes, a yes, bit. yes, yes. Yeah. And in fact, arguably in my response to your book, I make a small case for revenge, which you um, are not such a fan of as me. <laughs> um, but, you know, 2023, I think, has been full of rage for a lot of us and has a little bit of hope. Um, so one of the best expressions of anger that I know of is a short collection of poetry by a British feminist poet, Deborah Finding. Full disclosure, this comes out in September. I have an advanced copy because I do know the poet. So a little bit, this is a promotion for a friend, but I would promote these poems anyway. Um, it's called Vigils for Dead and Dying Girls. Mm. Um, and I, it is a very personal, so, you know, you and I are philosophers. We talk in the abstract, the conceptual, the impersonal. Uh, finding writes viscerally, concretely about the personal. So sh it is about vigils. Well, her most famous poem from that collection is called um, Where Black Bring Flowers. And it is about her experience of getting ready to go to a, yet another vi vigil for yet another violent, a sort of a victim of violent injustice and sort of what it means to want to do every possible honor to this person and yet also feel like it's pointless. There's just going to be another one. Um, there will be another and another and another and so on. But what she does is she takes this huge question, like, what do we do about the omnipresence of sexual violence and the complete failure to respond to it as a society? And she explores it from every possible anger. Um, so she, uh, she imagines the heroines of fairy tales in a hospital for trauma, having been hospitalized for trauma, what that would be like. 
Um, she writes a kind of choose your own adventure to illustrate the victim blaming. You can do this, but then this will happen. You can do this, you can do this will happen. She writes a set of instructions to um, the police officer that she thinks might find her body after an attack. Um, and she imagines a group of friends hexing someone while they have brunch together. Um, these poems are angry, they are articulate, they are sometimes a punch to the gut, but they also make me laugh and are just absolutely, a, they are written by someone who loves language almost as much as she loves feminist justice. And the two, I, yeah, everyone needs to read this. It's the kind of anger that leaves you feeling energized, not despairing. Um, okay. So that's Vigils for Dead and Dying Girls. And I think in 2023, we all need to read it. I've just spent 50 minutes talking about vengeance and rage and injustice. And so I wanted to end with a little bit of hope. Um, I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. What I'm about to recommend is a work of fiction that is arguably sci-fi, but I would describe it as sci-fi for people who don't do sci-fi and uh, dystopian fiction for optimists. Okay. Um, so it's called A Half-Built Garden by Rufana Emrys. It came out last year in 2022. And it's set after the climate apocalypse. So um, it imagines that the world has been changed by the climate catastrophes that we're already starting to see and that I think we're going to continue to see. But there's also been a political shift that's called the Dandelion Revolution. And so these amazing self-governing community networks have sprung up around watersheds that are sort of aimed at constant at working with local watershed ecologies to sort of repair ecosystems and to live with them. Um, and there's some really delicious world building about what it's like to do, um, to think about expertise and collective decision-making and family and gender and children and all that stuff. But that's sort of there if you want it and it doesn't get in the way of the story. The story is um, about a mother who's nursing her baby out one night and has first contact with an alien species. And suddenly there's all these questions about difference and trust and who do you trust and how do you trust them and how do you communicate who is trustworthy and who isn't if there's no common ground. And um, I guess a bigger question is, if aliens show up and offer us an escape from a damaged earth, should we escape? Should we leave it? Or should we stay and try and um, repair what we broke? And this really charming novel does this in a way that left me feeling like things might be okay. And so, yeah, that's my other recommendation. Start with Vigils for Dead and Dying Girls, but when you're feeling really angry, pick up a half-built garden afterwards. Alice, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Maisha. It's always so lovely to talk to you. Thank you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.